Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. I had to take off last week. I'm in the middle of production right now, so it's been a little hectic. But as always, Cinema is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. Most of you know that this podcast was inspired by Jaws the Revenge and what I feel is the worst motion picture ever made because it's not a motion picture. It is simply a piece of product that was never designed to entertain in the first place. And you want to know more about my feelings on that? Well, you can go back and listen to episode two, which gives the entire foundation for this podcast and and why I started it. Uh, I also did an episode, the third episode on Jaws 3D, which is the uh, second sequel to the original classic Jaws. And uh, if you remember, I found Jaws 3D not to qualify as cinema. And the reason why is, is as bad as Jaws 3D is, Jaws the Revenge is worse because of the fact that Jaws 3D did intend to entertain. Because it wasn't done well, doesn't qualify it as cinema. If you understand, cinema is the ability to make something great. You have all the means to do something or make something great, and you simply choose not to. And that leads me right over to Jaws 2. Because as I had said, Jaws the Revenge had no intention of entertaining at all. It was a total hit job and tax write-off. That's all it was. Jaws 3D was just badly made. And we you can go into that with uh, my, my previous podcast on episode 3. So I promised way back that I, I would do an episode on Jaws 2 and... Jaws 2 is of great interest to me because as I've always said, if you really want to understand how to make movies, devour everything that you can on the making of the original Jaws. Watch every documentary, uh, you know, read every book on how this movie was made and almost how this movie never got done. And that's its own story. What most people don't know is that Jaws 2 had an almost similar troubled production, except in very different ways. So let's go through this. And I I think you're going to find this really interesting because I often wish so many times, my God, I wish I could have seen the version that was originally slated for Jaws 2. In fact, I will go as far to say that had they made what they intended and started out with in Jaws 2, uh, it would have eclipsed Uh, the original Jaws, if they had just stuck to their guns. But we'll get to that. So as you know, Jaws for a while there went on to become the the greatest motion picture in um, uh, box office history, making $100 million in less than six weeks. It it, it did things that uh, really no other film up to that point had done and officially launched what we now call the summer blockbuster. Jaws, as we know, uh, most of us know, changed the way not only movies were made, but also how movies were released. And we'll be going into that another time. So it it was almost inevitable that there was going to be a Jaws 2. And uh, the public demanded it. 
and the studio demanded it. But the question is, what do you do with it? I mean, do you, do you go back and make a story as Spielberg wanted to do and make a story about the USS Indianapolis, the story that, uh, that Quint tells while sitting on the Orca in the original film? And you see, they, they did go back to Spielberg and they asked him about it. And, and Spielberg was adamant that, that Jaws needed no sequel whatsoever. So he was really, really reluctant. But he said, you know what? I'll give it a try. And I don't know what holiday. I think it was a July 4th holiday, uh, you know, the following year after Jaws came out. And he wrote up, I, I think it was a full script, if not a, a very detailed treatment for a Jaws 2. And uh, he, he made it based on as basically a prequel. And that would be that, you know, it goes back to uh, Quint's adventures on the USS Indianapolis and floating in the water uh, for all that time to be picked up after the Indianapolis was sunk during World War II. The studio said, no, that's not the direction that they wanted to go. And, and also, I, I've read numerous things where, believe it or not, like they brought in like Arthur C. Clarke and he, there was something to do with some kind of statue or I, I, I'm really reluctant to say monolith, but there, there was something to do with, with some type of symbol or, or object or relic at the bottom of the ocean, uh, turning Jaws from a, a basic sea adventure story into some kind of sci-fi thing. And so there were a lot of options on the table and where to go with this. And finally... Uh, they, they, they approached uh, a director named John Hancock uh, because Spielberg uh, finally just said, look, I, I'm going off to make Close Encounters. Jaws doesn't need a sequel. It was never intended for a sequel. So good luck, guys. If you're not going to do the Indianapolis, thanks for the time. And he probably got paid for his draft and he went on. So Spielberg exits the picture. And they went to John Hancock, whose only previous really big film uh, at that time was um, Let's Scare Jessica to Death which is a incredibly atmospheric horror film. And if you haven't seen it, treat yourself to it. I'm not saying it's the greatest horror film. I'm not saying it's the best, okay? In, in cinema, I don't deal with absolutes. But what I am saying is, for the budget that it was shot on, it's an extremely effective and atmospheric horror film and with some great imagery. And most of all, very dark imagery. Hancock likes misty landscapes and, and overcast days and... But from almost everything that I've read, uh, they were trying to, to capture that lightning in a bottle again by finding a, a relatively unknown director with something solid under his belt. Because Hancock, in addition uh, to Let's Scare Jessica to Death, uh, also did a, a tight little thriller called Bang the Drum Slowly. And so I, I think that's what Universal's plan was, is, hey, it worked the first time. Let's give this a go again. So they brought Hancock in and Hancock said, listen, I'd, I'd love to do this. I want to bring in uh, Howard Sackler, a uh, screenwriter and also a stage writer. And uh, he brought in his wife, uh, Hancock brought in his wife, uh, Dorothy Tristane, uh, to also be part of this. And they, they cobbled out a script that I got to tell you, the, the only way I, I've looked all over online for the original script for this, and I'm, I'm actually friends with Keith Gordon. And uh, I, I asked him if he had the original script of Jaws 2. And he did not. However, Billy Van Zant does. And he was married uh, to Adrian Barbeau, who's also a, a professional colleague and personal friend. And I, I want to borrow that script from Billy sometime 
uh, just to read it. However, the closest you can get to that script, and, and it's probably a waste of time because from what I understand is the, the Hank Searles novelization of the Jaws 2 screenplay is pretty much what they intended uh, to, to go to screen. And I'm telling you folks, pick up Searles' book because he's, he's a really gifted writer. And I'm going to tell you, first of all, the Jaws 2 book is far better than the original Jaws, than Benchley's original Jaws. It's better written, has a better story, and it holds you right till the end and has great imagery. Searles also went on to pen the the, uh, novel adaptation of Jaws the Revenge. And I'm going to tell you this, as much as I despise Jaws the Revenge, the movie, Searles did a damn good job with the book. So read the book. And even though it still comes from a silly pretext, um, it's it's really well done. You're almost asking like, why the hell didn't they make this into the movie? So Searles will adapt that. So if you're really interested in knowing what Jaws 2 could have been, find the Jaws 2 novel. It has almost nothing to do with the movie that made it to the final you know, cut, the big screen. So they bring in John Hancock and, and this writing team of, of Howard Sackler and, and Dorothy. And they bring them together and they, they craft out this story that basically uh, Amity has been economically devastated because of the first shark attack. And from there, it just all went downhill. And there are images of boarded shops and uh, real estate uh, that's that's up for sale and nobody's buying. And somehow Larry Vaughn is still mayor. Uh, Jaws 2 completely glances over all that. I mean, after his performance as the mayor in both the movie and in the book, Jaws, uh, Larry Vaughn should not even be, shouldn't just not even run again. He should not have run for re-election. But some reason, even in the book, he's back. However, times are hard. And although Benchley hinted that Larry Vaughn had uh, ties to, to the mafia, Jaws 2 makes it very clear that um, uh, Vaughn gets involved with a guy named Len Peterson, a, a sketchy real estate developer with mafia ties. And there are a lot of dark elements moving to Amity and Brody's uh on heightened alert. Now he's not really looking for a shark this time around. Uh, Brody is more worried about the casinos that are proposed to be built and, and a very New York City uh, mafia influence coming into his quiet little island. However, there is another shark as we know. And the book goes on to give complete details and, and bring in great characters, uh, including a, a New York City uh, deputy cop that Brody forms a good friendship with. And, and in addition to that, uh, a, a mafia hood uh, named Muscati. And, and it's really good stuff. But the one thing that Jaws 2, the novelization and original screenplay share with the final movie is the, uh, the, the armada, as I call it, the flotilla of teenagers that are, are you know attacked by the shark afloat out in the open ocean and Brody has to come to rescue them. Folks, that's pretty much it. That's about all that the novel shares over with with the final movie that Universal released in 1978. So check it out sometime. I I won't belabor that much more, but I'm letting you know that for all intents and purposes, uh, they were really setting out to top Jaws and also go in a different direction. And that leads me now to John Hancock. So Hancock comes on board. Uh, Roy Scheider returns. And Scheider reluctantly returned. He did not want to come to Jaws 2. Uh, he was done with Jaws because of the pain in the ass that Jaws was to make. 
And uh, Universal coaxed him in because uh, Roy Scheider had a legal problem on set of uh, The Deer Hunter. He quit the movie and there were legal things pending against him, a civil lawsuit pending against him. And Universal said, listen, we want Brody back. We want this movie to be about Brody again. They don't want to divert. They don't want USS Indianapolis. They, They want to keep it on Amity. We want you to return. And if you do that, we will forgive this, you know, error in judgment that you made in leaving the deer hunter. And although you have another two pictures owed to us, we will merge them into one. Jaws 2 will count and we will also pay you a lot of money. Well, Roy Scheider returned. And from what I understand, he loved the original script and he really liked John Hancock. However, the brass did not. And about six weeks into the production of Jaws 2, uh, Universal started getting nervous. They, they weren't going to have this again where they, they turn loose this avant-garde director on the Atlantic and uh, you know they, they're all the way in California not knowing what's going on. So this time around, the Universal Brass, they were, um, they were keeping a very watchful eye on this production. And so when the dailies started coming in, uh, they were getting nervous. And the dailies were showing a very depressed looking Amity, very dark, very moody, uh, not not the vibrancy that a lot of these executives were looking for. Now, there are a few photos of Hancock's work online. You can see a scene with Larry Vaughn holding Ellen Brody in what looks like a dock. And it, in this script, in the original script, Hendricks really didn't have much of a role. And there was another deputy in the background. It's, it has a whole different tone when you find that photo. It's got a very, very different tone. And there is only about 30 seconds of footage from Hancock's original shoot that made it to the final cut of Jaws 2. And I think when I start describing it, you're going to know exactly where this fits in. But it's the scene where the shark fin comes up at night in the bay, out in the harbor, And it just cruises past all these uh, boats just sitting silently in in the harbor. It is a terrific scene. And it comes right after the Holiday Inn opening, after Tina cuts the ribbon and all of that stuff. They pan out to the open ocean. That's all that exists that I know of, of John Hancock's footage. I'm telling you, we missed something great. Does this still qualify Jaws 2, the final product, as cinema? My answer right now is... Let's see. So the executives started seeing these these dailies and these rushes, and and they're not pleased. In the original draft of the Jaws 2 script, uh, it called for just Brody to go out on the open ocean. And the executives wanted something different because Lorraine Gary, who plays Ellen Brody, was and you know married to Sid Sheinberg, the president of MCA Universal that made Jaws. And the executives wanted Ellen uh, to go out on the boat. And they assigned Richard Zanuck, uh, the producer of the original Jaws, and his partner, David Brown. Uh, They wanted him to put pressure on John Hancock and the writing team to make sure that Ellen goes out on on the boat with her husband. And John Hancock was adamantly against it. Now, Dorothy Tristane, she... Uh, expanded Ellen's role completely. I mean, the original Howard Sackler script had very little for Ellen to do, and it was Dorothy who gave her, you know, work and a job and expanded her her role. And it was Dorothy who also wanted her. She's like, look, if that were my kids, I would be going out after them too. But um, 
Hancock was was resolute against it. And uh, Richard Zanuck wasn't happy about that, nor were the the MCA brass. There was a war going on behind the scenes. The official word was, is that Hancock's vision for the film uh, did not fit what Universal was looking for. That is a little suspect because number one, the script had to be approved. And it's a script to, at that point, the biggest motion picture of all time until Star Wars had just recently supplanted it. So they knew what was going on. They read the script. They knew the story. So I'm not really buying when, you know, visual images are coming in of what was already written on the page. I don't know why these people were so surprised. The real thing I think is, is that there there were politics behind the scenes. And I want you to understand, at this point in time, Hancock and his team, they had hired all the teenagers in this movie. These kids are excited, right? They did local casting calls on the island. They're shooting all this in the North Atlantic, just like uh, Spielberg did in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, They're doing all the same things. They're repeating those steps. And these kids are all hired and the cast is all in. And they're six weeks into production when Hancock was let go. Uh, The brass, uh, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, uh, came to uh, Martha's Vineyard. There was a meeting at a very popular restaurant on the island called Captain Dave's. And um, they sat him down and they just basically said, you're out, is what it is. We're, We're not liking what we're seeing. And who knows what was really said, you know, behind closed doors. But according to the cast, the next day, John Hancock said goodbye to everybody, left the set almost unceremoniously, and hopped on a plane to Rome to develop another motion picture. From there, the movie was shut down. It was shut down for a couple months as Universal went into damage control. And I want you to understand something, folks. The meter is still running, okay? You're still paying people to make this movie. You still have crew on the island. You still have writers. They call Carl Gottlieb back. Now, they did not ask Carl Gottlieb to return for Jaws 2 originally. And Gottlieb, he was very confident. He said, I saw him in an interview one time. He said, they didn't ask me the first time around. And I thought, they'll be back and they're going to pay. And they did. They brought Gottlieb back to work his magic in adapting uh, Peter Benchley's book and screenplay. And so Gottlieb comes back and they decided they're going to revamp the whole thing. It's not going to be this dark look, this sinister look, this murky look. They decided most of the shooting is going to move to Pensacola, Florida. So they're going to move it all the way down there. They'll shoot the obligatory scenes for New England. And then they're going to shoot most of the shark action and the beach stuff down in Pensacola, which has better weather, calmer waters, and it will just be an easier production. Joe Alves had returned as the production designer who, as we know, will go on to direct Jaws 3. And Joe Alves was now on a location scout down in Pensacola to start bringing Jaws to the production down there. Now, I want you to think of something else. All these actors that were brought on board, especially the teenagers, they were so psyched to be part of a sequel uh, to the greatest motion picture at that time of all time. And there were, I think, like 30 of them, 20-some, 30-some people, these kids, And pretty much all of them were let go. Only a handful survived. Doug, uh, the character Doug, played by Keith Gordon, survived. And only a couple others. Uh, Andy's character went from the original script of having a big role, uh, was reduced down to nothing. Gary Springer played him. 
And they assembled these things out with basically carbon cutout white kids, okay, is really what they did. They were carbon cutout vanilla white kids to round out a brand new cast for Jaws 2. And while the production was shut down, they retooled everything. And the number one thing was they need to find a new director. They still kept to that formula in the belief that we should pluck some director from relative obscurity. And it was Joe Alves uh, who suggested Jeannot Soir. And he had worked with Jeannot on, uh, I believe, a Night Gallery episode or two. And Jeannot was known as a TV director. And you can find a lot of this. There are a number of documentaries on Jaws 2, especially um, on the Jaws 2 Blu-ray. There's a documentary about this as well, too. Now, I I grew up devouring everything I could on Jaws 2 as well, including um, Ray Loin's The Jaws 2 Log, which gave me a real look into the world of filmmaking when I was a boy, when I was in like sixth grade. Because I just loved Jaws 2 when I was a kid, mostly because I was, you know, hitting puberty and I was really just digging the whole teenage scene. And I had a raging crush on Donna Wilkes, who played Screaming Jackie. And uh, my God, I would just love to meet her today just to tell her that. So they retooled it all. Joe Alves brought in uh, Jeannot and they had a new director. And so while they were getting things organized and all that stuff, Jeannot, who was known as you know, being able to hit tight deadlines, they need to bring this movie back on track. They need it for a summer 1978 release. Well, Jeannot gets to work. And really the first scene of uh, the new footage and the new director is the water skier scene. Uh, they went out and shot that while other things were being done and sets were being built and production was being tightened up because they had nothing else to shoot at that point. They didn't even have uh, some of the cast to fill it all out. So Richard Zanuck and David Brown returned as producers and uh, they ensured that this film would have very high quality as well too. It's gotta be a great film. Jaws, people will argue, the original budget for Jaws, or I should say the budget that they ended up with at the end, the cost of the film, is somewhere between 8 and $12 million in 1974-75. That's a lot of money, okay? However, by the end of 1978, Jaws 2's budget ended somewhere around $50 million. That's an incredible amount of money uh, to make a sequel. And that's because what people think is, well, I don't, I don't see it on screen. Huh? How could it have cost so much? You got to understand, they shut the production down. The meter is still ticking. You're paying people even though the cameras aren't rolling. That is so important to know as a filmmaker and especially for any indie, any indie uh, filmmakers out there. So the real question comes down to is, is uh, does Jaws 2 qualify as cinema? And here's going to be my short answer. And the short answer is no. And the reason why is that Jaws 2 was created to not only make money, but to also entertain. It was Richard Zanuck and David Brown who returned to make sure that this was a high quality production. And part of that was making sure that Roy Scheider returned. And Scheider, who was a stickler for detail and also had major, major problems with the director of Jaws 2. I mean, they got in a fist fight. I believe it was during the Holiday Inn scene uh, where Roy Scheider just accused Jeannot of of being a TV director, a hack. And, um, you know, Scheider just said, look, man, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm doing the part. It relieves the legal thing. They paid him a lot of money to do it. And he also knew if I don't do it, 
they're going to put someone else on the screen playing that character that isn't me. But there were huge problems on the set of this production. And I'm not going to go into all of them because that's not what this episode is about. The point that I'm making is Jaws 2's number one crime is that it simply is not Jaws. You can't say that it's a quote-unquote bad movie. Uh, There are problems with it, uh, especially one scene where you go, wait a minute, Harrison, you talk about quality. What about the scene where the shark almost gets Mike Brody and they, they use the angle where when the shark opens its mouth, you can see the hydraulic system inside and the rubber side of the shark's mouth just like kind of dents in. You know what? You're right. But back then, they weren't counting on freeze frame capability at home. You either watched it on the big screen and the action's going on so fast, you're, you're probably not going to catch it. Or you watch it on your small screen TV at home. You don't have a VCR. You don't have a DVD player where you can sit there and pause and frame by frame advance. No one was really going to see this. I will say that it was lazy. It's a glaring enough error that they they probably could have just painted that out. And they certainly had other coverage of that scene. And I've seen stills of that other coverage where I, I've never seen an animated like uh, still of it or, or film of it. I've seen photographs. I think the, the wide on it from the side looks far better than the angle that they chose. But I understand as a director why Jeannot went with it because it's a very harrowing angle. The problem is, is that the effect really doesn't come off well. And you'll see what I mean. Just go to that scene on DVD and pause it. You can see the huge hydraulic uh, pneumatic bar inside the shark's mouth. And there are other things too. Look, the script is weak. It doesn't have the huge human dynamic of Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss and and, uh, Roy Scheider. It doesn't have that kind of thing. And so it really hangs everything on Brody. That's the problem. So Roy Scheider is carrying this whole movie. You, You have some supporting stuff from Lorraine Gary and you have Murray Hamilton returning, but these are all familiar faces to make us return our asses into the seats. So the real thing is on Brody. I would say the number one problem with Jaws 2 is not its direction. It's very efficiently directed and well-directed. The issue with Jaws 2 is really the screenplay. Uh, I heard stories where, you know, Carl Gottlieb was staying at at the Holiday Inn where they were shooting and he was was cranking out pages literally by the day and just delivering them to set. And people would come to him, is the script done yet? Is the script done yet? No, it's not done. No, it's not done. But he would release certain pages because they had to shoot stuff. Uh, the script really doesn't knock you on your butt. I mean, they take the huge element at the end with the shark's demise. That pretty much stays the same, except in the book, uh, the execution of the shark happens by almost accident. It's not Brody beating on a power cable, luring the thing to him and yelling something to replace the smile, you son of a bitch line. In, in Jaws 2, it's open wide, say ah. Uh, I guess, but this time around, the script is just assembly. That's what it is. It does its job. There really isn't anything inventive about it. There isn't anything creative about it. Uh, It does the job. It gets us from A to Z. We open with a, a really cool shot of the orca, you know, sunk below Amity's depths. And uh, we move into Brody and our familiar faces. Hendrix is back. Hendrix has a boat launch. Um, you know, it's, it's cool. It's all cool and it's very familiar. And the other argument that I've, I've heard people say is they just show way too much of the shark. And Jeannot's attitude was, is look, 
We already know what sharks, uh, sharks look like. And we already saw the surprise is gone from Jaws. So we need a bigger and badder shark. I guess also the other problem with this is, is the monster movie horror element. Why do you have to scar the shark's face? If a great white shark, a 25, 30 foot great white shark isn't scary enough, putting a burn scar on its face from attacking the water skier boat isn't really going to help anything. You're, you're really not saving anything by doing this, but I guess it's a cool visual. People remember it, that's for sure, but it doesn't really bring anything new or inventive or creative to the table. So you're probably saying, well, wait a minute, Harrison, you just said Jaws 2 doesn't qualify as cinema, but you're trashing it. I am not trashing the film. I think Jaws 2 is a well-crafted, effective sea adventure movie. I don't think it's particularly scary. I thought it was scary when I was a kid, but I was in fifth grade when I saw it. So, you know, a lot of action, a lot of adventure, a lot of jumping, you know, jump scares and all of that. What I find interesting, and I've talked about this before, is that Roger Ebert, uh, if you remember the the classic and esteemed uh, film reviewer, uh, Roger Ebert declared Jaws 2 as really the first dead teenager movie, which is kind of interesting. You would think that Texas Chainsaw or even Halloween would qualify for that. But it was uh, Roger Ebert who said that Jaws 2 is less of a monster movie and more of a slasher movie. The shark is a Michael Myers kind of character, a Jason Voorhees, and it's preying on horny teenagers. And uh, it's, it's a real interesting theory about that. So you have these kind of weird elements with all of this. But here's the point. Richard Zanuck and David Brown returned and they were consummate producers, high quality stand-up guys that made sure that the film was not going to be a cheap knockoff. And to prove my point on that, after the success of Jaws 2, and that's the other thing, Jaws 2 was highly successful and for a while there was the highest grossing sequel of all time. But Zanuck and Brown... They were approached uh, to do Jaws 3 and their first approach, which this is in episode three of my podcast, but their first approach was a spoof of Jaws called Jaws 3 People Zero and it was written by Vacations, uh, Maddie Simmons and John Hughes and Joe Dante was going to direct it and Zanuck and Brown passed on it. They were like, nah, you know, we think we did all we could with Jaws. And, um, you know, we're going out high, you know, Jaws 2 did well, it's well made. And um, it was, I think, David Brown who said, doing this kind of a movie, a spoof, is like fouling your own nest. And good for them. So they could have just taken a paycheck and shot this. And from there, we we now know uh, Jaws 3 was shopped out to Alan Landsberg, uh, to a far lesser uh, production team. Uh, Joe Alves was dropped in as director and while he is a wonderful production designer, truly is and was, um, he was not a director. And Joe Alves never did anything after Jaws 3 again. Jaws 2, like it or hate it, in my opinion, does not qualify as cinema. And the reason why is it's incredibly high production value. It's dedication to bringing an entertaining story and giving us something to come to uh, that made the summers exciting. Jaws the Revenge makes no attempt at any of this. Jaws 2 is of high quality. Its major crime is that it simply is not Jaws. And Robert Shaw isn't back and Richard Dreyfus isn't back. Dreyfus was off shooting Close Encounters with Jaws' director Steven Spielberg. 
However, give Jaws 2 another look sometime. Yes, there are some over-the-top moments, of course, the helicopter scene and all of that, uh, but they meant to make a good film. And to give you another example, the helicopter scene. The helicopter scene, the way they edited it, and by the way, Neil Travis was the editor on Jaws 2, and he is a gifted, gifted editor. I wouldn't put him up there with Verna Fields, who edited Jaws, but he is a slick and terrific editor. And he made that helicopter attack looks like something, man. It's completely functional. They deleted scenes of the shark attacking the helicopter pilot under the water when the bubble uh, carry area of the helicopter flipped over upside down. And there's a reason why they did that. Because it looks like a mechanical shark on an arm doing that. It doesn't really function. There's a reason why they chose to cut it out. But you can find the deleted footage. I think you can even find it on YouTube. Yes, Jaws 2 has some problems. I'll tell you what, man. Read Hank Searles' account of the water skier scene when it attacks the water skier. Holy cow, is that far better than what they shot. But there's still some great moments. The shark POV point of view shot uh, that uh, Joe Alves created uh, by putting the camera on a fast speeding kind of catamaran submerged. All of that stuff. Jaws 2, you can argue with me. You're not going to change my mind. Jaws 2 is not cinema. It is well made, well done, and its intention was not only to make money, but to entertain. There is nothing about Jaws 2 to fleece the audience. They were committed to quality and they brought it back. They made some wrong creative decisions. I stand by the opening of this episode by saying they should have gone right with John Hancock's blue vision and depressed, dark, moody look with fog on the open ocean at night with that shark cutting through the fog. Oh my God, would that have been good. The, the visuals that the book brings up, it would have been better than Jaws. But it will never be. So this is Harrison Smith signing off telling you, pick up the novel Jaws 2 by Hank Searles and then watch Jaws 2. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.